Welcome to church, ACF. Wow, I'm not even sure if I want to acknowledge this, but man, it is warm already in this room. So we're going to have an adventure today to stay focused on what's going on inside and not be thinking about what might be going on outside. I highly recommend hitting the lake uh, later if you have a chance or absorbing some of this sun. This is amazing weather. So welcome. My name is Stuart. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't met yet, um, yeah, come and say hi afterwards. I'd love to meet you. Uh, we are in the middle of a series called Counterculture, uh, where we are walking through the book of Mark this summer as a community, and uh, we encourage you to read along uh, in the book of Mark. Again, today we're going to be on chapter 9, uh, so if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and put your thumb uh, in that vicinity. We're going to be talking about, or looking at verses 30 through about 37. Um, there's a lot going on in chapter 9. Last week, Paul Peterson, uh, he, we had the, the, just the honor of hearing from him. Uh, went through chapter 8, and uh, it, was, it was amazing. So I hope you were here to hear that. We're going to continue on and uh, continue to look at this, this idea that a kingdom culture is a counterculture. If we follow Jesus, it's going to rub against and go against and many times turn up on its head what we see in our culture. When I was in graduate school, um, it, it was in Dallas, Texas, and it was downtown Dallas, and there we lived, I lived in a single men's dorm. I hadn't met my wife yet. And there was mainly 20 and 30-something-year-old men who were not married. And this was a building that's since been condemned, and it should have been condemned. When we were in it, it was a pit. Uh, You can imagine a bunch of unsupervised dudes uh, of that age. Just like there was chaos going on. It was just a a dump. It smelled. It was gross. Uh, It had carpet from the 70s. It was was needing to be redone. They've since put a medical clinic right there. It's, It's much better use of that space. Um, there were a lot of people from around the world that attended this school, and as someone from the United States, I could work off, off campus, but those coming in uh, from different places many times were restricted to work on campus, and the jobs were, were they weren't plentiful, and they weren't always glamorous, and there was a, a group of people who they were hired to clean the common spaces of Lincoln Hall, which is the name of the men's dorm uh, that I lived in, and uh, one gentleman, Wilford Sawodi, had the glamorous job of cleaning all the common spaces as part of his uh, employment during school. He was from Ghana, Africa, and he was happy to have the job. Uh, and he, the common spaces included the restrooms, which I, I, I still to this day just kind of cringe a little bit when I think about that part of his job. But you could tell when Wilford was on the job because he had a beautiful voice and he would sing old, old school hymns all the time, as loud as you could possibly imagine. And so you knew that he was in the, in the building. It was a three-story building, and you could hear him anywhere in it. And he was just happy to be alive. Um, and Wilford was studying to be a pastor, a leader of a church back in Ghana, and that was his plan. And unfortunately, a few weeks before graduation, he was killed in a tragic car accident, uh, and that cut short. And so a group of students, some of his closest friends, accompanied his body back to Ghana. And so this, this guy who had been cleaning restrooms 
uh, when they landed the plane, they said they were blown away. There were thousands upon thousands of people greeting the plane. Uh, Wilford was a big deal. He was from a prominent high-end family back in Ghana. He was being groomed to lead this church. Uh, He was someone of notoriety in Ghana. But in Lincoln Hall in in Dallas, Texas, he cleaned our our urinals and our toilets and, and vacuumed this nasty carpet in our dorm. And I remember having a conversation one day, though, with Wilfred, and I asked him how he felt about the, the kind of work that he had to do. And his response just blew me away. It revealed a, a, an attitude of the heart that even to this day I just remember. And it was, I am so thankful that God is providing for me to be able to be at school, and I love that I get to serve other people in this way. That's countercultural. That's not something that we see every day, and it stands out in a culture, the culture we live in, which wants to make ourselves look as good as possible, which we want to raise ourselves up, and usually that means pushing some other people down, or at least by comparison. And so I'm not going to reveal to you the, the negative things in my heart or my life. I'm going to show you what's really good and how I'm maybe better than you. If you're telling a story, don't be the one-upman guy that's always got the next story that's better. But we typically fall into, or can fall into that, that line of thinking. And so that's normal. And so people like Wilfred stand out. It's not... It's not normal. Um, and I love that Jesus gives us some really clear guidance in Mark chapter 9 on how to engage our culture differently than we might think in order to make the, not just to make a big impact, but if we engage the culture as Jesus did, it will make a big impact. Um, last week, uh, again, Paul Peterson uh, did a, an amazing job opening up chapter 8 to us. And he really talked about, uh, challenged us with this quote. Uh, I love it. It says, the way to matter more is to matter less. Uh, that's by our great theologian, Paul Peterson. And just reminding us that there's more going on in, the, in life than just what we can achieve on this planet. Just what we can accomplish today or this week or this year or even the next, what's your five-year plan. Jesus is saying there's something bigger going on. And it's really for the souls of men and women that we want to make sure that we're making eternal impact that we're following what God has for us and not just following our own desires all the time. So we, we, we kind of come at then chapter 9, and at the beginning we're going to skip over this, but it could be a whole other sermon, which is if you, if you have labels in the different sections of your Bible for different paragraphs and things, this one probably is labeled something like the transfiguration at the very beginning of chapter 9. And what happens is Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, Uh, from the other disciples, so they're kind of special or closer to him maybe, and takes them up to the top of a mountain, and they get to see something that's amazing. Uh, They see a bright light, and suddenly Jesus, it says, is transformed. And in the Greek, it says metamorpho, which is, my mind goes right to uh, like a caterpillar changing into a butterfly. Like every school student uh, gets to, you know, learn about this. It, It starts off with this lowly caterpillar, and suddenly it's a beautiful butterfly. And so really what's going on is Jesus is getting revealed for who he has always been, who he really is. We, they had just seen him as a, a good teacher, a man, someone claiming to be the Messiah. They're thinking earthly kingdom, and Jesus gets revealed in all of his glory, and they, they now recognize something different. We don't have time to like preach off of this today, but it really it emphasizes a couple of things. The fact that Moses and Elijah were there, it's emphasizing that the, Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophet, that Jesus is the fulfillment of these two things. So he's something different. The fact that God, for one of the three times, he speaks directly uh, of Jesus where others can hear, and he says, follow him. 
It really is that exclamation point on this is, Jesus is more than just a man walking the earth, teaching good things. He's more than someone you think is going to lead a revolution. He is the Messiah. He is the chosen one. He is my son. He is the son of God. So they come down from the mountain after, and Jesus, I love you guys, don't talk about this. What you've seen, I know it's amazing, but keep it, keep it quiet until after I've resurrected, and then you can talk about it. It'll make more sense then, right? So it's like, put this, put this away. You're, you're, they're probably still like trying to figure out what just happened, and, and then we move on, and Jesus is like, don't talk about it. So then um, they come down the mountain, they join the other disciples, and then they, they uh, decide to go to, uh, through Galilee. So we read this starting in uh, Mark chapter 9. And we're going to start in verse 30. It says this. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. In verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And so this is the second time he starts off by telling the disciples, hey, the, the Son of Man, me, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be tried, crucified. I'm going to raise from the dead. And they don't get it. It's the second time that back in chapter 8, he's the first time he tells his disciples this, and they don't get it. The second time, he doesn't, they don't get it either. And I think the Holy Spirit is in, in holding back the understanding of what he's really saying. But also, their mindset, they're in the midst of a, a major shift of thinking that, Jesus is coming to lead a, a revolution on earth to maybe push out the Roman conquerors and free Israel again, that this is going to be an amazing movement. And Jesus is talking about something far more significant than just a temporary place to stay. He's talking about eternal business. And they don't quite get that yet. It, it's going to take them a while to come around. So that's what they're doing. And then they come off this mountain. You've got Peter, James, and John. So now they're walking with the disciples. And there's probably other people around. And they're discussing different things. And somehow, I don't know if Peter, James, and John started. I can see Peter starting it because he's kind of that kind of personality. But, hey, who do you think is the greatest? Who's Jesus' favorite? Who's going to be the best in the kingdom? Who's got the most skill? And so somehow they start arguing about who's the best. And my guess is it wasn't, hey, you're the best or he's the best. It was more like, hey, I think I'm the best. I think I deserve to be in a position of prominence in this new kingdom that's coming. So they're arguing, and so then they get to the, they get to the house. Jesus is like, hey, what were you talking about? He knows what they were talking about. And they kind of do the kick the ground thing, you know, like, I don't know. They were arguing with each other, and it was not becoming um, of the disciples, right? And I love that, um, and this is where we're going to focus today, is where it says, if you want to become uh, first, if anyone would be first, and this is... Um, I don't even know what verse we're in here. Thank you very much. I appreciate you. In my notes, I don't have the numbers, and I was trying to find it back in the Scripture. So there we go, 35. If you want, he wants to become first, 
must be last of all and servant of all. So we're going to focus in on that. And I love the word servant here. It can bring up different things that we think about, right? I think about it being forced to do something. You know, like when the garbage can fills up at, at the Poteet household, there is going to be a child taking the garbage out. And it is not voluntary. It's forced labor. Um, and I will ramp up the penalty for not doing it, you know, whether it's, you know, lose your iPod, TV privileges, uh, some kind of grounding, whatever that might look like, until the garbage suddenly gets taken out and around to the can. That's, that's forced servanthood. That's not the word that Jesus is using here in, in, the, in the language that it's written in. He's using voluntary, putting yourself in a position of servanthood, choosing to do something with no expectation. And that's, that's what we're going to kind of focus on as the topic today. And so we go from the, the disciples arguing about who's the greatest, trying to show like I, why I should be the best, why I should be second, third in command under Jesus' new regime. And I want to contrast that by looking back at a guy named Gideon in the Bible, who when God approaches him says, no, no, I'm the least. And he's actually in, he's being pretty accurate about his circumstance. And we're going to see why in a second. But I want to see that contrast and to see what can happen when God gets involved in our lives. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn back to Judges chapter 6. Because what would a Stuart sermon be without going to the Old Testament at least once? (laughs) Just can't help it. In verse 12, it says this, and this is God, the angel of the Lord, or God coming to Gideon, who's a guy in Israel. So this is a time in Israel. They've come out of Egypt. They approached the promised land, didn't go in um, because they were scared. So then God says, well, this generation won't go in, but your kids will. So we're going to wander the desert for 40 years until that generation is gone. Then we'll go into the promised land. And so they've done that. They've divvied up the, the land, but they didn't they didn't completely fulfill it. So they got their land, and the different tribes went to their areas, but there were still other people living in them that they should have pushed out. They pushed out the majority of the power in that area, so they controlled it, but there were still people living in their land. And they were supposed to continue the process, but they got comfortable, and they stopped. And so then we pick up in the book of Judges. What happens, and it starts off, it says, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So they just start kind of turning towards the customs of the people around them. Hey, that's pretty cool. I like the way they do that. They're nicer or different or whatever than following this God guy. And so they, we we see in Judges this cycle of they turn away from God, they do their own thing, and God gives them into the hands of their enemies. And so things don't go well for them because he told them that. If you stop following me, you're going to kind of get what you deserve. Um, You're going to, you know, reap the consequences of your actions. And so that happens. Well, then they, they realize their errors and they go, God, we've made a mistake help us. And he would send what they called a judge, somebody, a political or a military leader who would come in and through the power of God would help free them again and get them back on track. And usually while the judge was alive, the, the nation would in general follow after God. Like they would go, okay, life's better following God than following ourselves. So we're going to do it. So Gideon is coming into this process kind of late in the game, but Israel has once again walked away and they are being oppressed by the Midianites. So here's what we see, verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is... And I think he's kind of sarcastic because they're being dominated by the Midianites. In fact, at this moment where he meets the angel of the Lord, 
Gideon is hiding from the Midianites because they would come through and just take all of the food and anything of value at, their, at will. So they would just come through, take everything, and then they would leave. And so they would hide so they would have something. So he's hiding at this moment. So I think he's kind of like, oh, please. I think that's the way my mind reads it at least. It's not scripture, but that's just the Stuart version of it. And Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours. God's calling. It says, go in this might of yours. And I love it. I have a feeling Gideon's kind of like venting a little bit, like, please, if God is with us, this wouldn't be happening. And then God goes, wow, you're a feisty young one. Go in that might. Come on, let's go do something. Take that spite or that anger or that frustration you have, and let's go do something significant. So the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So there's that what seems to be humility. He's, he's recognizing, like, I'm, I'm a nobody from a clan of nobodies. And Midian's overpowering us. There's no way we could fight their army. Um, and then God says, um, let's see, back in verse 16, the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So God reminds him, like, yeah, you can't do it, and it's, but, but I'm here. I'm going to fight and it's going to be like we're just fighting one dude. We're not fighting the whole Midianite army, which was said to be outnumbering the sea, uh, sand of the seashore and the camels were without number. This was an overpowering enemy force that they had no chance of, of succeeding in a battle against. So what does Gideon do? Gideon raises uh, an army. He sends word out because he responds to God's call. And he sends word out. And he's able to muster 32,000 fighting men in Israel against an overwhelming force. So it's insignificant. And if he had gone into battle, I believe, with 32,000 people, I think he would have been decimated. But God had, he makes a comment later on. We won't read it, but God's like, well, 32,000, they might make a dent. It might, if, if they were to succeed at all, then they would say they saved themselves and it wasn't really God rescuing them. So he goes to Gideon and he says, I see your army, they're impressive, but you have way too many to fight this battle. And you, in Gideon's mind, he's got to be thinking, I have way too few to even make a dent, and yet you're telling me I need to, to reduce the, battle, or the, the army size, and he does. Um, and ultimately, God whittles his army down to 300 men. And if you remember the story, those 300 men following God, are able to absolutely rout the Midianites and provide freedom again for Israel at the time. A side note is that Gideon really wasn't as weak as he might have let on. He was known to the Midianites, but he was submitting himself. He understood his position. On his own, he had no power to do this. He, He was at least real enough to acknowledge that. Even though he could have said, yeah, I'm a pretty good warrior. I understand strategy. I know all the things. I have a pretty good idea how we might be able to do this. He's like, God, how can I lead this? I have no ability to do this. There's no way I could be successful. I think one of the the misgivings we have is that when we say like voluntary service to other people, submitting to Jesus, submitting to the people around me who deserve it or don't deserve it, I think we think weakness. I think we think that when we do that, we're just saying we're too weak to stand up. We're too weak to do the things. And Gideon is not a weak person. He was able to lead in might. He was able to maintain stability in Israel even after this. So serving is not a sign of weakness. 
Submitting to someone else voluntarily is not a sign of weakness. You know, I have five daughters, and they've all at one time or another done this. And two of my kids, my six-year-old and my, my eight-year-old just turned nine yesterday, so she's now nine, so it's, I might mess that up. But they, they do, love to do one thing right now, and that's tickle fights with dad. And they're, they're very crafty. Um, I don't know where they get it. It must be from the mother. But they, they'll come up, and they'll say, Dad, I just want to snuggle. I just want some, a hug. I love you so much. And I fall for it every time. My heart melts because they jump in my lap and they, they hug. And then they start tickling me. They just, they've gotten close enough now to, to lodge a battle. And so once I engage that, they, they'll stop momentarily and they'll yell to their sister, the other one, tickle fight, it's on. And so they come running across the house and then they jump on me. And then they're trying to, to, to dominate me. But I'm an adult man and I weigh over 200 and... My kids don't, together, don't even weigh half that. So, I, of course, what I do is I, I throw them down and I yell at them and say, you know, I can dominate you all day long. I'm more powerful than you. I obviously have more skill. I've got more experience. Go away, you losers. Because that's what a good dad... No, I absolutely let them play in the game, right? Because I want them to be part of it, even though I could easily dominate them. And to be honest, some of their tickle assaults are just not that ticklish. And so... But I pretend to laugh, and I, like you are now, and then they feel like they're in the game. Why? Because I'm weak? No, because I, I'm actually strong, and I care about them, and I, I want to bring them along. So I'm going to serve them in that way so that they will grow, so that they will have confidence, that they will have a good time and have good memories with their dad, all the good things, right? Someone told me a joke um, earlier, and I have to, I, I, I'll probably butcher it, but I have five daughters, so I have ten tickles. Um, tentacles. Um, I laughed in my head, so that's, that tells you about my level of influence. So, so we contrast, we've got the disciples vying for who's the best. We've got Gideon saying, I can't do this without you, God, and God going, that's okay. Vol- like, uh, willingly coming under God and serving not only God, but the nation of Israel. And so then back in Mark, uh, we see Jesus saying that that's what we should be doing, so uh, that we should be, if we want to be first, if we want to, to make a, an impact in, our, in this world, in the kingdom, that we need to do something different, that we need to be last. We need to put ourselves in a position voluntarily of being last, of a servant of all, but we have a problem. We're stuck. I, think, I believe we're all stuck in one way or another. We are all stuck on ourselves. Um, we have a problem that we just want to focus on us. 19th century preacher, and I love this name, Octavius Winslow says it this way. Of all idols, man finds himself the hardest to abandon. Of all idols, man finds himself hardest to abandon. When left alone, we are going to default, I know I do, to self-fulfillment, self-gratification, and what amounts to ultimately self-worship. Those are the things that will start to be evident in my life if I don't focus on following Jesus or submitting to the, and caring for the people around me. I'm just going to make sure that I'm happy. So when left alone, I'm going to naturally drift towards those things. But there's far more important things that we're being called to do. We're, we're called to follow Jesus to make a kingdom impact, an eternal impact into the lives of not only our life, to watch ourselves be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, but then to take that and to spread that around to other people and to, to let people know that there's more important things going on than just make sure we're padding our bank account or looking good on Facebook. And here's what I know. 
is that when we follow the command of Jesus to serve others, we get to see God do the impossible. When we follow the command of Jesus to serve others, we get to see God do the the impossible. So when we voluntarily put ourselves in a position being the least, we get to see God do great things in our lives and the lives of other people. And this is easy when they praise us for it. If I hold the door for you and at least you say thank you, I'm good. I'll do it again. Lord, help you if I hold the door for you and you don't say anything or you ignore me going through or maybe you even under your breath go, now I'm not going to do it for you anymore. Lord, help you if, if what happens when somebody, I help somebody and they send me a thank you card. Thank you for coming over and helping me with my, my, my lawn. Or they give a gift card. I love it. I will serve again and again because that's easy. Because I love that. I want that gratification. I want that feel good in my heart that I did something. I extended energy, maybe money, whatever it was, time, and you acknowledged it. That's all you got to do for me is acknowledge it. And I'm good. But what happens when I do those things or I do... I do things where I'm voluntarily putting myself in service of someone else and I get nothing in return. Or I even get hostility in return. I'm trying to serve somebody and be careful with them or caring for them and what I get is continued just abuse, um, not to the level of like just walk away from the situation, but relational um, anger and, and hostility is coming towards you and you don't get that reciprocation. I just did this for you, and you're now yelling about this. Or I did this for you, and you're pointing out the one little flaw in it instead of saying, thank you for doing the bigger thing. It's harder to serve in those instances. On our own, we're going to fail. We can't do it. We just can't do it on our own. We need something different. So if my marriage is struggling, I can't fix it. But... Me plus God can. Relationally, if I'm struggling with somebody, my boss at work, I can't make them respect me, but me plus God can change the situation. When someone's treating me poorly, whether I deserve it or not, I can't change that situation, but me plus God can. This isn't the point of the, the message today. The message really is about submitting yourself voluntarily to following Jesus and thereby If we do that, we're going to submit ourselves voluntarily to serving other people, even when it costs us and isn't comfortable. But this is something I want you to remember, even if you remember nothing else that that you hear today. Are you ready? Nothing is beyond hope when God's involved. Nothing is beyond hope when God's involved. You may have walked in this room with no hope. You may be in a place where you're just like, it's beyond help. Whatever that is, a relationship you're in, your marriage, your, your relationship with your kids, extended family, your job, your financial situation, whatever that is, you may think, I am beyond hope. This is, there's no way this is going to ever get better. And I can tell you that when God's involved, there is always hope. Always hope for you, for me, for us. So what does it look like when we step back, let go of the reins, and serve God, and then serve other people? What does that look like practically? Because I, I want to be... I want to provide something for us as a community to step forward in that is not just, I know I should serve other people. What, what does that look like? And I, there's a, a passage in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 19, that I think gives us some really good guidance. And it's going to start sounding familiar. We usually don't start way back here, but, and you'll see why. 
So this is Galatians 5, starting verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. So the works of the flesh are those things we do in our own power when we're not really giving a thought to submitting our lives to God, when we're not really thinking about the people around us, when we're really arguing in our own heart about, I'm the greatest. How can I be the greatest? So it says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgy, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this may be more familiar. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its possessions or passions and desires. So let's look at each one of those real quick. Let's look at the works of the flesh. It's a big, long list. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I am going to ask you to look at the list and ask yourself, if you compare your heart, your character, not what you present, but who you are, as you think about that, do you see some of those things alive and well in your life? If, so, if you were to describe yourself, would some of these be some of the descriptions in your heart? Let's look at the fruit of the Spirit. What about these? Do you see these as indicators or descriptors of your heart? If you're honest with yourself. You see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And someone asks, and has a good question, and I don't know the real answer, but this is my thinking on it, is why are there 17 works of the flesh listed here and only nine fruit of the spirits? Like, that's a big difference. And I, I was thinking about it. It's, it's like making chocolate chip cookies. It, my, my kids love to bake, and so they'll bake chocolate chip cookies. And some of my kids will take the bag, turn it over, and literally follow to the T the Nestle Toll House cookie recipe, and they're amazing. And they don't even get to cookie form. I like to eat the dough. I know there's eggs in them. I will die. I'm 53. I'm still okay. It's a slow death. So those cookies taste amazing. There's a few ingredients. There's only a couple of ways to put them into practice, and they're amazing. And my other kids, they take that more as like general guidelines for how to bake cookies, because then they think about other things that they like that taste good, so they throw those in. And sometimes that's kind of hit and miss. Sometimes you're good, and sometimes you're like, I don't know what happened with this, but it's a train wreck in the cookie world. And so I think there's a lot more ways to sidetrack our lives by doing whatever we want to do. And there's, there's only a few things that if, if, if we engage those well, that we'll find that we are, we are honoring God and we're honoring ourselves and other people, um, that we are living a righteous life. So there's a, it's a lot shorter list to actually do the right thing. So how do we see these things develop? It's as we... Spend time connecting with God, reading his word, understanding what he's telling us. As we spend time praying, as we spend time in community with other people who can encourage us and spur us on, as we willfully submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we're going to start seeing the fruit of the Spirit develop. As we draw near to God through Jesus Christ, we are going to see more and more the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. As we just decide to do whatever we want, Whatever seems right in our own eyes, building ourselves up perhaps, we're going to see the works of the flesh more and more evident in our lives and in the relationship to the people around us. 
And I love this, this passage because it, it not only tells us that we need to be connected to God to see these things happen, that it's God working in us and through us that develop these in our heart to real change, but it can be an indicator because if I examine them and I'm honest about them, whether it's works of the flesh or fruit of the Spirit, I'm going to see a little of both in there, but if I'm honest, what I'm going to see is an indicator about the strength of my relationship of following Jesus Christ. If I'm submitting to that relationship, if I'm following closely what Jesus has commanded me, if I'm allowing him to be in those everyday spaces, the relationships of my life, the the situations that I find myself in all the time, if I'm doing that, I'm going to see the fruit of the Spirit developing, or it could be an indication that I'm pulling back. I'm going to see the works of the flesh developing. I think it's nice, and I I think in my mind, I had this grandiose, I I want to be known as a servant of all. I want to be known as a good guy, man of character. I want to have the fruit of the Spirit. I want you to think of me that way. So I like the idea of that, but then when I actually put it, it come down to practical application of that, the day-to-day, minute-by-minute, what do I do when I get home and uh, my kids are mad at, at each other, and I'm trying to insert myself into this argument? How am I responding? Am I, am I responding with some of the fruit of the Spirit? Am I being gentle? Am I being loving? Am I being patient? Or am I just responding out of the works of the flesh? Because that's where the rubber hits the road is, is really when I'm interacting with somebody else. When my boss is, is upset with me and disappointed and telling me the work I did isn't good enough. When my wife is telling me things that I don't want to hear treating me in a way that I'm not excited about. That's when it gets harder. But that's when the work is actually being done. Are we inviting God into those spaces? Lord, help me in this situation to be patient with my kids, to be gentle and kind. And I I respond this way too, is there are times when I've put myself in a, a servant role with other people and they didn't respond. And I did it again and again, and they still didn't respond. They just, it just seemed like it didn't affect them whatsoever. And so then I'm prone to be thinking, I tried that, it didn't work, and I'm done. It's not worth the effort. I want to give up because they're obviously not getting it, and my efforts are just being, I'm just being a doormat for this person. So when I find myself wanting to give up and not voluntarily putting myself in a position to serve somebody, there's a verse, and it's just right next to it, Galatians 6, 9. And it says this, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. I think sometimes we give up far too soon, and we, we think that things aren't happening underneath the surface far too soon. And so we walk away from really seeing God do some amazing things in our relationships. But ultimately, it's not about what we see in somebody else. It's about how we approach it. Am I voluntarily putting myself into service of somebody else because I want them to see the love of Jesus Christ? So if we're going to see people change around us, we need to personally submit ourselves and our wills and our desires underneath Jesus Christ. We can only do that when we get to know him. And if we want to see the lives of people change around us, we need to do the same with them. Jesus gave us the best example to follow. He came not to, not to be served, but to serve. The only one in the universe who really warrants our service and our worship 
is God alone. And Jesus came and was worthy of that, but yet what did he do? He became a servant of all. And then he says, if you're following me, I'm asking you to do the same thing. He, he leads by example. So how can we take practical steps this week? On your seat when you came in was a card. I encourage you to take that out. You'll notice baptisms are next week, so make sure you check that out. If you haven't been baptized, I would encourage you to, to think about that. But there's an action card on the bottom, and what we, really want, what we want us all to do as a community of believers is not just talk about change and like the idea of change, but to actually take a step. And if we do it all at once, if you think of all the fruit of the Spirit all at one time, it's going to be overwhelming. But if you think of, let's take one step together. So here's four suggested steps. The first one is super important. It's kind of the, 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 the linchpin of everything. Begin a relationship with Jesus. Begin a relationship with Jesus. You can, you can hunker down and change your reaction and the way you treat other people just because you, you, you want to be a good person. And it's just going to be kind of a, a shell of a religious life. You're just going to be doing it um, on your own power, and it won't be long-term successful. And ultimately, you're just going to be jumping through some, some religious hoops. But when we have that relationship with Jesus, he starts through the Spirit to work in our hearts and actually change who we are. So that's, that's where it all begins. That may be you today. I want to begin a relationship with Jesus. The second one is honestly evaluate your heart. Use Galatians 5, 19 through 24. Where are you at, honestly? Take your pulse and see, see what you see in there and then ask God to start coming into those areas uh, where you need some work. Third one, stop fighting and serve someone. I like a good fight just like everybody else. And I'm always right. You're wrong. And the reality is I just sometimes need to stop fighting and I need to care for someone. I need to put myself voluntarily in service to them because I care more about their eternal destination and their life here on earth than I do about winning this argument right now or having my rights be held up, being the greatest. And the last one is read the book of Mark. We're we're reading through the book of Mark. We're on chapter 9 this week. You can catch up if you haven't even started, but I encourage you, put put the book of Mark in in your list of books that you've read. Uh, This summer's a great time to do it. So I encourage you to take advantage of that and catch up if you haven't. Would you go ahead and stand with me as we end our time um, of the service in prayer? Before we pray, I forgot what they... We are going to have, if you came into this room with maybe some hopelessness or you've got some some things that you would just want to share with someone and ask for prayer on, um, during the, the next worship set, uh, we're going to have people up around the stage who are willing, to, they, they want to pray for you. Um, and again, it's not a sign of weakness. It's just saying, I, I, want, I want someone to come into this space with me um, and, and lift this issue or, or me up before God. So that's available to you. You just walk up and, and they'll pray for you. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your great love for us. Thank you, Lord, that you have set the example that you came not to be served, but to serve. Lord, you deserve to be served. And yet uh, you said, this is how we should live. Uh, my followers will be, be uh, known for this. So Lord, would you help us to take seriously that command that you give us? If we want to be first, and we all want to be first, we want to be good at, at the things that you've called us to do. We want to be excellent at the things that we try and, and engage in. So Lord, if we want to do that, you said we need to put ourselves last of all, that we need to put ourselves as servants to all. So instead of arguing and trying to be the best, Lord, help us to submit humbly to your leading and then to loving and caring for other people well. Lord, because there's more important things going on 
than how we look on Facebook or Instagram. There's more important things going on than whether we can win a fight. Lord, there's eternal issues happening all around us, and I pray that you would help us to see that and engage it well. Lord, I pray that you would help us to represent you well and to be known as people who dearly love the community around us. We love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys.